Well, we are uh, beginning, not today, but uh, we're headed into the season of Lent. And uh, uh, in Lent, the, the idea is we're supposed to um, be miserable all the time. So so um, that's actually not correct. But, but working with that idea, we're going to talk about theology for the next several weeks. So um, that'll help us to be uh, miserable. Uh, we're we're going to begin a new conversation that I've called Creed II. So Creed Two. What is Creed Two? Well, it is not a sequel to a boxing movie. That's that's a coincidence. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. Don't don't try and read that. It's small print. We'll have big print later. Um, but the Apostles' Creed is is a confessional statement. It is a statement of belief. The word creed means um, it, it comes from the the. Uh, the Latin word credo, which means I believe. We have, we, we find things are incredible. If some, if something is unbelievable, we say that's incredible. Or, uh, we say, I, I believe you're going to pay me back, so I will extend credit to you. Right? So that's the idea. So, so that's what a creed is. And so it's a statement of belief. A, a, a creed is a statement of what it is that people believe. And we're going to be looking at one of uh, many, uh, uh, creedal statements that have been made, uh, down through the centuries, uh, in the church. The one we're looking at today is called the Apostles' Creed. Um, it probably doesn't go back quite that far. Uh, it, it reached its current form in the 8th century, but parts of it go back to the 2nd century. And I don't think many apostles were, were still living at that time, but, but uh, as maybe it could be part of a, a oral tradition or something. So we're going to be looking at the one called the Apostles' Creed. And um, despite uh, what I said at the beginning, I think what we will find is that, is that these, these statements are, um, are practical, that they're not just something for theologians to debate in ivory towers. They're something that we can actually apply in our lives today. And um, uh, the reason is because uh, there, are, there are traditions within the, the great Christian movement um, that say I don't I don't hold with with creeds I don't believe that there should be any statements of belief now that's a statement of belief in itself but but they they, they mean there is no formal statement that the only creed I have is the, is the is the Bible the only thing that I want to to uh, uh, lean my life against is the Bible and that's not a bad sentiment so um, I don't want to to uh, argue with that idea but what I want to do is talk about. How do we do that? So in the news this week, as we talk about, everybody's talking about Ukraine, right? What does the Bible say about Ukraine? Well, I'll, I'll give you, you know, I'll, I'll skip to the end. It doesn't say anything about Ukraine, right? Ukraine does not appear once in the Bible. But does that mean the Bible has nothing to say about what's going on in Ukraine, between Russia and Ukraine? Well, that's the question, Right. And the purpose of a creed is to is to help us understand what does the Bible say about particular situations. So, what does the Bible say about about uh, uh, war or about uh, slavery or about any other topic that's that's current in people's uh, lives? So, the idea of a of a creedal statement is to is to help people um, answer that question. Now, if I said, "What does the Bible?" If I asked one of you, "What does the Bible say about what's going on in Ukraine?" Well, what you'd probably do, I mean, if you had to answer, is you'd probably, you know, open up your Bible and you'd start flipping through it, hoping something jumped out at you. Um, you know, there's all those wars in, in the, the Hebrew Scriptures, you know, the Jebusites and the Amalekites and, and smiting and things like that. So maybe there's something in there that I could learn from and apply uh, 
to the situation in Ukraine. So maybe that's my, my that might be what you do, or maybe you'd be a little more organized and you say, well, my Bible has a concordance, so I'm going to go look for war and violence and things like that and see what the Bible says in those passages. So you might do that. But probably what a lot of us would do is we'd we'd say, what do you think? We'd find another Christian and we'd say, what do you think? What, what, what does our faith teach us about about the situation in Ukraine. And so we'd have a conversation. And that's the idea of a creed, that, that a creed is conversational. So if you're following in the outline, the first point is that, is that the creed should be uh, viewed as a conversation. Um, within within this particular tradition, I, I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church. Within the greater Reformed Church, um, the idea is that there are creeds, there are confessional statements, but they have relative authority. Their authority is lower than the authority of Scripture. So everything that that um, that a creed says is subject to what Scripture uh, uh, discusses. So it has relative authority, and that raises the question: Well, what if you don't agree? What if you're having a conversation with the creed, and it says such and such, and you say, "Well, I don't agree with that." The way I read the Bible something else, right? I have a different perspective on that. Well, uh, again, this tradition says that all creeds are provisional and temporary. Provisional means that people like me, people who stand up in the front of rooms like this and and make statements, and we say, well, you know, the, here's what the Bible says, which which I do every Sunday, right? Is that is that I'm a sinner. I'm a, I'm as prone to error as anybody else. So so that's true when I sit down to write a, a, a confessional statement or a creed. I make mistakes. So every creed is provisional. It's also temporary because new situations arrive. You find out there is a place called Ukraine, and then you say, well, maybe we need to write a a, a creed for that. In in the Presbyterian Church, the most recent creed that was adopted within the Presbyterian Church is something called the Confession of Belhar, and it has to do with the idea of how how does what, what does Christianity teach about apartheid. So it was adopted by the church in South Africa a couple of decades ago, and it was incorporated in our book of confessions because things change. People get new perspectives, and the Holy Spirit is always at work guiding the church into uh, the, the different world. So all of which is to say that, that the creeds are, are useful things, and um, our church uh, 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 adheres to creeds, and the one we're going to look at today is the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be looking at it actually for the next several weeks. And um, uh, I hope to show that that it is actually a practical thing to um, to uh, be guided by the Creed, to think of it as a roadmap that is guiding us toward the Scripture that it has um, that it uh, um, that is the authoritative source of, of Christian um, practice. So, um, this is the Apostles' Creed. Again, small print. Uh, don't expect you to read that, but um, but there are three parts. So, the first part is about God the Father. The second part is about God the Son. Um, and the third part is about God the Holy Spirit. The first part, um, we looked at that back in 2018, and it took us four weeks to go through that first line. So, I'm going to try and move a little more quickly this time. So, um, uh, that that those those uh, messages are still on the podcast. They're not on YouTube, so um, maybe someday I'll have time and they'll they'll go up on YouTube too. But uh, we're going to be looking at now for the next couple of weeks until Easter is the Apostles' Creed Article Two. So finally, Creed Two. That's that's uh, that's where um, the boxer title comes from. So so Creed Two. We're not going to look at uh, uh, the uh, Article Three uh, soon, but uh, maybe in another four years we'll do that. And so here we are, the Apostles' Creed, Article Two, and now we're ready to talk about our reading. So, 
Um, the, uh, the very beginning of the Apostles' Creed, Article 2, says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So it, it began, uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, our only Son, his, his only Son, our Lord. So, in the interest of getting through uh, this whole section uh, between now and Easter, I'm going to put aside any conversation about Christ and Lord. The reason is because they are such a big topic that I'm going to have a whole separate uh, uh, series of messages later this year on the Lordship of Christ, what it means that Christ is the King of the Kingdom of God. So we're going to be looking at that. So what does that leave us? In that first part, it says, Jesus, His only Son. So... His only Son. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And the reason for that is because today is Transfiguration Sunday, as I mentioned to the children, because we're going to see this is one of the places that the Creed points us to as we discuss what does it mean that um, Jesus is God's only Son. So uh, if you've got the scriptures there in front of you, um, it says about eight days after... Oh, I should have mine. <laughs> so about eight days... Um, about day, eight days after Jesus said these things, what things are those? Well, if you go back prior to this reading, Jesus is is telling his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and there he will be crucified. So he's told them that, and they didn't get it. He's going to tell them several more times, but but um, they didn't really understand him. So eight days later, he goes up uh, with um, Peter, John, and James, and they go up on a mountain and uh, they pray. And while he is praying. The appearance of his face changed and his clothes flashed like lightning. So that's where we get the the name of this Sunday, Transfiguration Sunday, or that's that's the Latin uh, way of saying it. In the Greek, it's metamorphized. So uh, if you remember your biology class with the butterfly, a transfiguration, metamorphosis, same thing. So so Jesus' appearance changed. He looked glorious. Um, the 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 white uh, the the face changed and clothes flashed like lightning. Right, so two men appeared. Two men appeared with him. Uh, Moses and Elijah. They were talking with him, and they were clothed with heavenly splendor and spoke about Jesus's departure, which he would achieve in Jerusalem. So they appear and they are glorious too. It's not it's not clear if they're glorious in exactly the same way, but whatever it is, they stand out too. They they are clothed with heavenly splendor. And and um, Peter and uh, those with him were almost overcome by sleep, <clears throat> but they managed to stay awake, and they saw his glory as well as the two men with him. So, so they. Uh, my guess is this kind of woke them up a little bit. It's like, where did Jesus go? So um, they, you know, something has changed, and they they um, uh, see his glory and the two men with him, and then Peter who's never slow to uh, come up with an idea. Peter says, um, as the two men were about to leave Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good that we are here. We should construct three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I looked at every other English translation I have in my study, and nobody else says shrines, so I'm not sure why our translation says shrine. Uh, most most of the translations I consulted look uh, say tent or booth. So... Um, I don't know what what they are thinking Peter's getting at, but it really doesn't matter. It's not worth having a big um, uh, debate over um, unless you're trying to get a PhD or something. You know, then go right ahead. But but for for us, we don't have to worry about tent versus shrine because it says it tells us right here in the Bible that this is nothing smart. 
that Peter doesn't know what he's saying. He didn't know what he was saying. So uh, go ahead and figure out whether it's shrine or tent or booth, but uh, it's a dumb idea, whatever it is. Peter is is making noise to fill the occasion. So he doesn't know what he's saying. And while he's still speaking, a cloud overshadows them. And they entered the cloud and they were overcome with awe. Now, um, if you've done any hiking in the mountains and so forth, you might have been in a cloud too, and you probably weren't overcome with awe. And on top of that, you'd think with Jesus changing his appearance and Moses and Elijah, the two greatest figures of the the um, Hebrew scriptures, they appear with Jesus. You'd think there'd be already plenty of awe. So what what about this cloud makes them experience awe? You know, why would they suddenly experience awe? Well, the reason is because it's not just any ordinary cloud. It is the cloud of the messenger of God. It is this cloud that indicates that God is present. Uh, if you remember our conversation last spring from the book of Exodus, we looked at the story of how God liberated the people of, of, uh, God from, from their slavery in Egypt. And we learn that as they're fleeing into the desert and, uh, their, their, their back is up against the Red Sea, um, that God's cloud, the, the pillar of cloud, moved to protect them from the Egyptians. God's messenger, who had been in front of Israel's camp, moved and went behind them. The column of cloud moved from the front and took its place behind them. So, so they're protected from the advancing Egyptian army by the cloud that is the presence of God. So, so um, that is why they are struck by awe, that even in the context of Jesus looking different and Moses and Elijah showing up, the presence of God is even more awe-inspiring than that. And a voice from the clouds says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So why does the Apostles' Creed say that Jesus is God's son? Well, the reason is because God says so. According to God, Jesus is God's son. So... This is one of two places um, that, that the, the New Testament describes that. I mean, it's actually several, but um, in the other biographies of Jesus that, that reference the same event, they also say it. But uh, so on, on the, at the transfiguration up on this mountain. But it also occurs when Jesus is baptized. So if we go back to chapter 3, we'll see um, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit came down on him in bodily form like a dove. And there was a voice from heaven, you are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. So that's in in uh, three of the biographies of Jesus. And we also read it in Peter's letter. He says, he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when a voice came to him from the magnificent glory saying, this is my dearly loved son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, and I was there. We ourselves heard his this voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So that's why the creed says that Jesus is God's son. It's why Christians believe that God, Jesus, is the son of God. Now, there's a question. The creed says God's only son. Why, why, why does it say only son? That's not what God says from the cloud. Well, why is that? Well, Jesus often describes himself as the only son of, of God, but... Um, but for, for Christians, we might say, well, wait, I thought we were children of God. I thought that Jesus gave us the, the, the status of children of God, and that's right. In uh, John's first letter, um, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called God's children. And that is what we are. So we are children of God, but we're not children of God in the same way that Jesus is. We know that because in the letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, when the fulfillment of the time came, God sent his son, his his 
Son, Jesus. And this was so he could redeem those under the law so that we could be adopted and into the family of the children of God. That we become children of God not because we are naturally children of God, not because it is in our nature to be children of God, but because God has adopted us through Christ to be his children. So that's why Christ is the only Son of God. He's the only natural Son, the only one who is a Son of God by his nature. So, there we go. Now, the question for us is, what does this mean? What does it mean, not just you know in a dictionary, what does it mean to us? Why do we care? What, what is the significance of being a Son of God? Well, one of the meanings is that it means you rule God's kingdom. We don't have a lot of kingdoms today. There's still a few kingdoms here on, on this planet, but mostly we don't understand what a, what a kingdom is because we assume that they're all like England. You know, when the queen dies, she's 95 or whatever, and someday she's going to die, and then Charles is going to become king. But in, in most of the world, for most of history, that's not the way kingdoms work. What you do if you're the king is you put the prince in charge of the place, and and by the time you actually die, everybody's used to taking his orders. That's the way it normally works. If you think about um, what uh, Saudi Arabia, I don't even know who the king of Saudi Arabia is, but but um, Bandar, oh, uh, what's his name, um, uh, Mohammed uh, Al Salman, he's the he's the ruler of Saudi Arabia, even though he's not the king. And that's the way most countries have worked down through the years. That that the the ruler of the kingdom is not the king. He is the son of the king. So that's typically the way it works. And like I said, we're going to talk more about Christ and lordship and kingdom um, in, in a future series and a little bit later in this series. The other thing it means is that because it's your kingdom, you protect it, you preserve it, you, you defend it. And so the son of God is the deliverer and the savior. And that's really what the whole rest of this section of the Apostles' Creed is going to be about. It's going to talk about the deliverer and savior. But there's one more idea Jesus shows who God is, that there's a family resemblance. To be the son of God is to look like God. That's, I mean, that's the, the, the meaning that we most commonly think of. If I say somebody is, is, is my son or somebody is somebody else's son, you expect them to look similar, that there would be a family resemblance. That's the normal way that we understand to, to be a child of somebody is to look like them. And Jesus shows us who God is. And we see this in the scriptures. Um, in John's gospel, it says, no one has ever seen God. God, the only son who is at the father's side, has made God known. That that's how we know who God is. We don't know, you know, God's in that cloud. If the cloud ever shows up, we'll have, you know, our hair will stand up on our arms. But, but other than that, we won't be able to really discern anything about God. The way we understand God is by looking at Jesus. That God, the only Son, has made God known. And we read in the book of, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, in the past God spoke to the prophets through our ancestors in many, um, many times in many ways, but in these final days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So, to understand to understand who God is, we have to look at Jesus. And we can do that safely because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has a family resemblance with God the Father. So, that same section of Hebrews, though, goes on. It says, God made his son the heir of everything and created the world through him. The son is the light of God's glory and the imprint of God's being. And remember, we heard the word glory earlier, that, that, that 
Jesus looked different, that they saw him in his glory. They saw, they saw uh, Moses and Elijah clothed with heavenly splendor. So what is glory? What does glory have to do with all this? Well, Jesus shows us what humanity will be. Jesus doesn't just show us what God is like. Jesus shows us what we were meant to be and what we are becoming in him. When we look at Jesus, we say, I wish I was more like that. If we have a clear picture of Jesus, we will say that. We'll say, I wish I was as patient as Jesus. I wish I was as loving as Jesus. I wish I was more like Jesus. And the good news of Transfiguration Sunday is that we are becoming more like Jesus. God is making us more like his son. And so like I told the children, we can remember when we are not who we want to be, when you know we have the argument with our spouse, when our boss says, you know, you better shape up or I'm shipping you out. We can remember God is not done with us yet, that we are going on to glory. So we read in um, this same section that they saw his glory and the two men who were clothed with heavenly splendor. And John says, we have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son. And in his letter, John says, dear friends, we are God's children. And it hasn't yet appeared what we will be. But we know when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So, that's the places that this roadmap, the Apostles' Creed, has taken us today as we look at this passage of Scripture for Transfiguration Sunday. But I want to leave it with this last thought. If you're a preacher and you're trying to say, what do I tell the people to do with this? Here's a tip. Don't ever contradict God. <laughs> so God says what we should do with this, right? I don't have to come up with some clever, some clever uh, interpretation of this passage because God says right there, listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. So how do we listen to him? How do we listen to him? Well, we read the Bible. We maybe even consult a concordance. We really want to know what does the Bible teach us about Ukraine. So we go looking up wars and things like that. We listen to what Jesus says in the scriptures. And we talk it over with other Christians. We talk it over with the people around us, the people that we know at work or at home who are also Christians. We have conversations. What does our faith teach us? What does Jesus say we should do in a situation like Ukraine? What should it what does Jesus teach us to do with our finances or with our sexuality? What does Jesus teach us to do about any particular thing? We talk that over. And the great thing about a creed, the great thing about a confessional statement, is we get to talk it over with the Christians of every age. This this text, the Apostles' Creed, it's not authoritative, it's or whatever authority it has is temporary. It's it's relative and it's provisional because we're we're only human. This is the best that we could do. But for eighteen hundred years Christians have looked at this and said, yeah, this is pretty good. It's not the Bible, but it's pretty good. So one of the ways that we listen to Jesus is we have conversations with the living saints around us and those who have gone before us, the saints who produced 
the document that we call the Apostles' Creed. So, Jesus is God's only Son. Listen to Him. Let's pray. Oh God, you dwell in unapproachable light that if your cloud descended, we would be struck by awe and hide our faces. But by your grace, you gave us Jesus to to look to, to learn from, to listen to. So we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to listen to Jesus when we pray, when we read the scriptures, and when we have conversations with the people who also put their trust in him. We pray all these things in his holy name. Amen.